Hey, dude, how are you doing? Man, how you been? Doing good. You know, this week has been very, very good for me at work. Yeah? What's up? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Like, stuff I've been working for years. It's just finally, finally started working out. But enough about all that. Today, we've got a buddy of mine, a Frenchman, (laughs) on today because... We are both kind of geopolitical nerds. So what is geopolitics? Well, it's essentially what happens when two countries interact with each other and how that all works. So without further ado, here's our guest. Uh, Teari, how are you doing, sir? Hello, I'm doing good. I had a good week on my end and excited for this podcast. Excellent. Yeah. Welcome. So... To start off this episode today, we're just going to go through, I think, some of the reasons why Putin decided to end the European peace and go through to actually invade Ukraine. So I haven't publicly stated this, but I've every single one of my friends has heard my uh, defensible position spiel about the nation of Russia, where essentially... Mm-hmm. Back in, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the state of the USSR had all of their major like weak points covered. The places where it's very easy to move like a Mongol horde or a tank division through had all been plucked. They had all those gaps covered. Mm-hmm. Well, when the USSR started to fall apart and all of the individual countries started going away. You were left with just Russia, the Russian Federation as we know it today, which you think, oh, look, big Russia, largest country in the world. They have no, like, it's impossible to defade Russia. You know, this meme of you can't invade Russia in the winter and all that jazz. It's utter malarkey and bullshit. It's actually very uh, easy to invade I, Russia. I actually, I actually think Napoleon and Hitler would both disagree with you. So, Napoleon... They were invading the USSR the, in what we considered the USSR at the time. It's, it wasn't just purely Russia. Yes, it was the USSR, um, which yeah. is very different. But invading Russia... Uh, so, so, invading the Russian Empire, it's a little. They had more territory, first off. So, they had Belarus, all the Baltics, yeah. which is Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. They had most of modern day Ukraine, I believe. And so, it was essentially from the Polish border or whatever the country was at the time when Napoleon invaded. Yeah, the Ottoman. No, no, no. Ottoman no, south. Ottoman is on the Turkish. Ottoman is south. Poland is here. Then you have like the Russian Federation, the Russian Empire. The problem Napoleon had, the problem Napoleon had is he had a great strategy, but he was a one game man. He had one particular tactic. He was going to hit and run, hit and run. He wasn't like an Alexandrian type. He learned, he mastered one particular method and he could win any battle. The problem was the Russians said, we're not going to fight you. We are going to force you in. And when he got too far into their territory, they were just going to, they were just going to slowly like hit him from the side, hit him this way, that way. And essentially make it where he couldn't have any particular 
resources. Like they were basically going to starve him out. So if Napoleon could have faced the Russian army, he probably would have wiped them off. But they never let him get the chance. Winter came along. He had already lost about a quarter, I think it was, of his force in summer. I believe so, yeah. Due to disease. Like, he actually lost more people in summer than winter because of disease and everything else that was going on from heat, stroke, and all that. And then you get to winter. Your supplies are running low. No one had proper winter gear. And they decided to retreat. And so they just basically said, we're going to retreat and go back. And so the Russians took advantage of that. That's how we see it from a Western perspective. The Russians, how they see it, is they essentially burned everything down as Napoleon was coming closer. They burned half of the countryside down to make it to where you couldn't get the food storage, you couldn't like take the buildings and use them as housing for the winter, etc., etc. Same thing in World War II. Same tactic until they got to Moscow and Stalingrad and Stalin essentially said, we are not surrendering these points because the USSR is over. If we, if we don't defend we lose the capital. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's like playing a game of risk. You're willing to throw away a couple of countries here and there. But once you start getting into your main forces, that's when the game gets further and further out of reach. Yes. So the, the main territory. Exactly. So from the Russian perspective, they view it as we destroyed our country twice and got extremely lucky that they did not properly plan this out. Because if Napoleon had just said, we're going to take so much territory, we're going to take our time and do all this and adapted his strategy, he would have easily defeated the Russians. Well, yeah, if he, had, if, he had, if he had stopped and said, OK, this is now the border. Well, no, border. you don't have to do that. He could have literally said stopped in Vilnius or stopped in X city and stay there and then move forward the next year, move forward the next year. You can't just keep burning down your countryside. The only reason they were able to run out of room. Yes. Well, the thing is you can't just keep doing that because your people will revolt. You can do it for a season. Like you can do it for a year. That's kind of what we saw. Yes. That's literally what we saw. So the Russians basically destroyed their country both times. There's what's known as the uh, Great, what is it called? The Great Gap or like the Great Empty? I forget what it's exactly called. But I know you what have, you're referencing. I'm also forgetting the term. Yeah, but you know what I'm talking about where you yes. have. So among Russian men, I think it was like 10% of all of the male population of the Soviet Union died in World War II. So you have, if you ever look at like the population birth rates, the people who would have been born like in the 1950s for us, the baby boom, there's just this. There was no baby boom. There's a bus. Massive And that's what we're actually seeing now is one of the reasons Putin's doing it now is because he has to. We're seeing that yep. that lost generation is going to have their grandkids uh, come of fighting age right now. So all of these kids, all of these soldiers he can put into the front lines are all going to become too old soon. And you're also seeing a mass um, immigration uh, immigration outside of Russia where they're all leaving. So you're yeah. having a massive brain drain, drain and also just a general skill drain. And so I would argue that Putin's 
motivations for this aren't coming from a reasonable point, uh, then very, very much based out of nostalgia for the former uh, USSR. And we can get a bit more into depth into that. But that he also sees his time as being limited. Um, I don't think he's particularly worried about a coup d'etat, especially heading into this, but more of like he is getting sick, he is getting feeble. Um, he knows he's not going to live for another decade, two decades. And so he sees this as this is the opportunity and the moment that he has to do it, or he would never able, be able to actually do it in his lifetime. So it's a strike now or never be able to strike? Yes. Pretty much, because Putin um, grew up in the, and also lived in the glory days of the Soviet Union. Um, he was a KGB agent in, his, uh, Eastern, in Eastern Germany uh, for the beginning of his career, and very much those were his had very glorious days at that time um, in terms of just how he personally views it. And as he wasn't necessarily a super high achiever or extraordinary agent, but he definitely had good connections and was doing quite well for himself in that time. And it's no, no secret that he longs for a time of the Soviet Union and he sees it, he's a collapse of the Soviet Union with great sadness and really wants to go back to that time. And while he knows he can't go all the way back, he's been slowly starting to try and accomplish goals of starting to try going further and further back into what the former Soviet Union was. And when he sees the lack of consequences that he has, we can do that see with Georgia, 2008, pretty much no consequences. Crimea, incredibly minimal consequences, and most of them were just very time-limited, as in they were during the uh, time of the invasion, and then very quickly fell apart afterwards. And then, so he sees he doesn't have any pushback, and if there is pushback, it's very minimal. And that he, it still is a longing goal for him to try and reunite the Soviet Union. He knows he's not going to be able to remake the entire Soviet Union as a whole, because it's not possible, especially the Baltic states, where NATO, now that's, you can, they they can hate forget about. They hate Russia. Yeah. Exactly. They hate... You can forget about, um, they still have a significant Russian population, but they can forget of being able to actually unite them and actually create a Soviet Union. So like the main countries you can see are Ukraine has a major Slavic population. It is very much like Russian. There is very close cultural uh, synergy and um, uh, they're very close culturally. And so Ukraine is also a massive powerhouse, as in its industry is absolutely massive and it was some of the core industries of the Soviet Union during its time. And so this massive, this neighboring country with a very, very close culturally and has a massive industry and also a ton of resources in terms of natural resources um, and also has a lot of skilled employees. Their tech sector is pretty impressive for the Eastern Europe. And so he sees this country, then he longs for it to be back in terms of the former Soviet Union. He knows that he hasn't received any consequences for trying to start his conquests of going back. And then he sees his age starting to increase and his lifespan starting to diminish. And he can probably also looking at the demographics of Russia and the state of Russia and knows that if he wants to do it in five years, it's the odds of him succeeding are going to be much more minimal than right now. So he sees that this is the time. And mm -hmm. especially now he's coming into re-election and needs to prove to the Russian people that it is a, like needs to prove to the Russian people that he should remain as their leader. And I mean, it's not like 
there are true elections, but it's still something that <laughs> he does need to retain public support. Right. And because even right now in Russia, he still retains. I mean, I haven't checked um of the, He's the extremely announcement popular. of the. He's yeah, I haven't checked popular. off the, the announcement of the um, general mobilization, not general mobilization, like partial mobilization, but like he's still in like the 60s, uh, the 70%, like mid 60s, if I'm not mistaken, Han. Yep. Um, his, so, so talking to, like, I work with Russians. My boss grew up in the Soviet Union. I, there are several colleagues who also did. And talking to all of them, it is quite clear if the Russian elections were completely like fair, like let's say they were like the United States elections in terms of just like the openness and everything, Putin would still win the popular vote easily. Yeah. Like all three of the major parties, even the anti-Putin parties, quote unquote, they all support him. So it's, it's, he, he is very popular. And a lot of that is due to the propaganda and all this other stuff. Um, but his biggest thing is like, he comes from a time when the country was essentially run by this, um, economic mob. Like essentially when the Soviet Union fell, it was left up in the air and no one was there to take it. And so the oligarchs acted like as a mafia, if you will. And so like Putin came in and kind of cleaned up a little bit, or at the very least it appeared he cleaned it up. We yeah, don't, I don't appear yeah. Studied or he organized it. He's partially responsible for it. So one of the reasons why his transition was so seamless is because he also agreed not to um throw to, in jail anyone from the pre from the Yeltsin administration that had been involved in a lot of corruption. Mm -hmm. So to get on a couple points that Terry was talking about, like Crimea and Georgia were very big things. Sure. Mm -hmm. But he's also done it on a much smaller scale. He's done several with North Os with uh, Ossetia, with yep. the stuff that's going on with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Like I think there's been several different things where like there's small gaps in the Caucasus Mountains, which is the mountains between Russia, the Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then Turkey. That's the mountain range between those four those five countries, and so. He's done very specific actions and very specific things to set up um, points where he can plug up those holes. So he has literally been showing us every step of the way where he's like, fill this hole, fill that hole, fill this hole, fill that hole. The ones that are left are the hardest ones to fill. There's what's known as the Bessarabian Gap, which is essentially um, Bulgaria through... Romania and Moldova up, which is how the Ottomans always invaded the Russian Empire. And then there's no real like border or like uh, no real geographical boundary in what's called the Great European Plain. So all of Northern Europe is this big long plain, which makes it great for agriculture, absolutely amazing for agriculture, but also makes it very easy to move an army or a tank division. And so if you want to have a secure border for Russia, you have to go past Ukraine all the way to Warsaw because there's actually a viable river to cut off like anything from the West. Hmm. So Ukraine is the beginning of it, at least in theory. So kind of, kind of to hinge back on what you and I were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. 
and uh, our guest touched on it too. Where, where, where have the repercussions been? Why aren't, why isn't NATO stepping in and stopping this? Sarah, you want to go on that? So I feel this is multiple aspects of it because BBC, well, let's talk about the uh, Ukraine part. Let's say like yeah. his response to Ukraine, because the rest of this stuff, we it's not really in our yeah. sphere, so we really don't care too much, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm going to focus on like why NATO has had like such a strong reaction to Ukraine. And uh, I think this invasion of Ukraine contrasts to previous um, offensive actions that Putin has pushed forward. So both Crimea and Georgia, in the case of both, he didn't invade the entire country. Crimea is a region of Ukraine. And then Crimea in Georgia, he only invaded uh, two um, quote-unquote independent republics in northern Georgia. He didn't invade all Georgia. Now this is a, for example, he's doing a complete invasion of a country, and as such, um, it's threatening quote-unquote world order, as in for quite a few years, uh, quite a few decades rather, in terms of the northern hemisphere, there's been pretty much a general respect of borders. Um, it's particularly in Europe, you haven't seen in um, major border infractions where people completely ignore the existence of a particular state. Um, sure, that's happened in Africa, um, particularly like Central Sub-Saharan Africa, but in recent in Europe, it has not happened since World War II. And that has been a big factor of if we do not stop this, are we pretty much saying that no... No, no, um, a country's sovereignty is not something that matters as much and is something that is greatly respected and that countries still need to focus on guaranteeing their own sovereignty and not relying on allies and neighbors. So we don't see a lot of the effects that Russia's going through. Because so with the sanctions and everything, they're not allowed to use payment processors. You can't use a Visa or yeah. MasterCard in Russia currently. Um, you can't use, like, if they want to buy something, they have to give physical gold, essentially, if they want to transfer, or they have to use a foreign currency. They, you can't really use rubles for much except for, like, oil and other stuff. Yeah. So, like, talked about the, because this is something I hear a lot of people talk about is, well, the sanctions didn't collapse Russia. Because that's what everyone was talking about. This is going to collapse Russia. Russia's going to have a coup. And all this stuff, which both you and I agreed that was not the case. That was not going to happen, no. at least in the short term. No, I definitely don't think that's going to happen. Or it, it's not going to happen, at least in the short term. Um, Putin has too much of a stronghold right now. And also the thing to not forget is that when he got into power and was working with all these oligarchs, the general the consensus he made with all of them was that you don't meddle with my politics, I would meddle in your economic activity. So, sure, they may not like Putin, but he doesn't meddle in their e economic activities. He doesn't meddle in their corruption. He lets them be and lets them remain corrupt and lets them make an absolutely ton of money by being corrupt. And, and we're talking about the exchange, oligarchs for those who don't know. Yeah. And in exchange, they don't meddle in his politics and in the political, in the politics of Russia. And so it's very hard for even these oligarchs, if they were to be upset and unhappy and say their economic activity got significantly impacted by the sanctions, it's very hard for them to try and go into the political sphere and attempt a overthrow of Putin because they don't have any political presence and they don't 
support any particular candidate, which had they known political presence, that they'd be able to turn to and be able to push forward. And so there, there isn't was, like you would, you would agree with me in saying like there isn't one. Uh, I mean, like there's uh, no replacing Putin except for maybe what is his name? His name is yeah. I, I'm thinking the the that, leader of like his opposition. Um, he's yeah, but not really. Uh, if you ask any yeah. like Russian citizen, like Navalny is not actually a thing. Navalny, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Navalny is not, not he actually have a thing. to support. He doesn't no. have close to the support. Uh, he's sub twenty percent. If I from and when that's probably an during... overestimate. That's probably an overestimate. Uh, yeah, it was at the peak when he was just was about to be arrested and got arrested when coming back to Russia. If from memory, I want to say it was around twenty four percent that his uh, popularity was at, and that was an absolute peak. Um, so there is no kind of popular support, and so oligarchs are pretty much have the option of. Either you continue to support Putin, or and your economic activity, while maybe diminished now, still remains to a significant extent. And they, at the end of the day, incredibly corrupt. So they're still making tons of money. Maybe they're not making as many millions and billions of dollars as previously, but they are embezzling a ton of money in their pockets. Or if they attempt to oppose Putin, they risk losing absolutely everything on an economical aspect, and then also being jailed, if not killed, as we've seen many um oligarchs and also just powerful uh russian figures the mysteriously uh we'll see mysterious deaths in the last couple months um well they slipped in the shower and fell on some bullets come on now yeah or uh it's <laughs> suddenly uh collapsed after eating dinner um uh, eating yeah. lunch sorry uh yeah they were they were helped out the balcony of the window okay come on now they exactly. wanted a better view right 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 <laughs> so I, I may just be the simpleton in the room, but we have this creation of the UN for a reason. The UN came apart or came about as a result of World War II. Yes. Where we had yeah. Hitler and the Nazis invading Poland and starting a war that spread through all of Europe. The idea of the UN is to prevent that. Am I correct in thinking that? Yeah. It's supposedly so, to do. Supposedly, yes. yes. So, me, as an outsider looking in, it looks as though Putin is just testing to see how far the UN and the rest of the world are going to let him go before they actually do something about it. Well, so if it's a mess, sorry, go on. So, my question becomes, y'all's opinion What's gonna what what is it gonna be the final straw? What's it gonna take for Putin to do what is he gonna have to do for the rest of the world to say you're done, it's over? So in a lot of ways we're already doing that. Like the the issue here I'm not ta- I'm not talking sanctions. I'm talking where we tell him move and we will blow you off the earth. The problem is we can never do that because of nukes. I his nuclear weapons. They have more nukes than nukes any other nation in the, the world. world? Yes. Versus all the world. First off, the number... So they have the most of any individual nation. Hmm? Yeah. The issue is not the the missile silos in their nation, in their country itself. Those would be easy to take out in this theoretical, like, decision. The issue is the nuclear subs. That is the bigger issue. Because those can strike at any moment, anywhere, and they just give them the go, they can go. The, the nuclear submarines are the true aspect of a country's nuclear deterrence. 
because yes. like right. you uh US has them, France has them, um Russia mm -hmm. has them, Britain has them, and I believe that's it in terms of countries with actual submarines with nuclear weapons enabled or like on board. Uh yeah, sorry, they have the capability countries. of launching a nuke from a sub. Those four countries have true nuclear deterrence because even if you were to completely annihilate the country and turn it into pure apocalyptic landscape, they can still strike back. And that is a major factor. Um, I do want to touch on the UN bit because the issue of the UN is a Security Council and yes. Russia is on that Security Council. And the Security Council is five members which pretty much have veto power on security like actions relating what security and what peace but when you have your an invader on there who is actually perpetuating the actions you have a veto power against anything against them and any sanctions against him and any actions to protect the sovereign nation that he's invading you can't do anything and so the un has seen itself being pretty much powerless because anything they try to attempt to pass over russia can just veto it Outright, yep. and then but they remove Russia. You can't. They can because in, in the uh, foundations of the UN Security Council, um, if I'm not mistaken, the Han there's seven and then five uh, permanent, and then two which get elected every year. Um, so what you see is you have France, US, UK, um, Russia, and what's the uh, which one am I missing? Um, China, U.S., China. Yeah, so those are your so those five are the members. permanent. Exactly, and so those never like those are always active. And yep. then, if I'm not mistaken, then you have two others, uh, or ten others who get. It's two. Right, like think. elected. Yeah, it's two others who get elected in every year. Um, not every year. It's for. So um, for so for however long. Yeah, it's for a specific amount of time. Uh, no, it's ten members. Sorry, it's fifteen total, ten elected members. Um, okay. We have ten, 10 elected members, but still those are elected and so those rotate out. Um, but your five permanent countries remain permanent all time and they have a veto. And so if you remove Russia from it, you're pretty much threatening the state of the entire United Nations because something yeah. that is set in stone from the very beginning is not being completely. So the UN, so, so the UN can stop South Africa. From doing something, it cannot stop so, Russia or China or us. So, this is just me asking. I don't mean this disrespectful to past, but were our the founding fathers of the UN really that stupid? Think that one of those five could not get the idea in their mind to invade other nations? If they had to build something in like a failsafe. That's not the point of the I would, UN, I think. Yeah, because the if China or Russia were again to fight US, UK, France, because um, it was not, forget this was in 1945, we had the entire mm -hmm. Cold War. We had the threat of nuclear war for 60, 70 years. Not uh, 70 years, like 50, year, 50 60 years. Um, 1945 to like 1990s. So... You know, had it for a, a solid 56 years. They knew they weren't not thinking of if we can't, like, neither of those countries are going to come into conflict. It's more of if there is a conflict within those, against, like, 
including those countries, then you're threatening the entire state of the world. Um, and the entire, like, because at that point, you're pretty much going into a nuclear war, or you're going into a war where nuclear weapons may be used, slash are close to being used. So a, any of those countries... Sorry, go on, Han. So the way I see the UN is it bring, it was an avenue to bring people to the table. You have yeah. a line of... You have a diplomatic option now versus before you used to go to one country you get something you'd go to another country you get something else or then you'd have like a big conference that would come together but those aren't set things like you know the conference of vienna and all the fallout that happened there and a lot of stuff happened through that the un is just like a permanent conference where everyone can come together sit down in the same room and actually talk now how effective that discussion and meetings are is a completely different conversation but at the very least they are having the conversation yeah so something you and i were talking about before we start recording on was uh the idea of peace in our lifetime and how do we achieve that a big scale i don't mean individual country to country you mean every single country well globally yeah and it seems like the idea of the UN should be that focus. Global peace, global everybody trying to get along. But if 90%, 99% of the world is agreeing and one disagrees, then shouldn't that 99 have the power to tell that one to shut up? Not if they have a veto power. And, or and, that's, and that's the problem then. Because yes. the problem is that will always be over our heads. So basically, this is, once again, I'm the simpleton in the room, I know. But it feels like, as the United States, you have to sit back and basically watch, or watch, see, I almost said it, watch Russia do whatever they want with complete immunity, and all we can do is go, okay, well, we're just not going to trade with you. Well, you do have the sanctions and everything. Yeah. It's not just not trading. It's not just not trading. Because here's the yeah. deal. If every other country in the world shut Russia off and said, you're not getting anything from us, then what would happen? So, what... I think... Go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say, like, one thing I think that we shouldn't forget is that the UN is a way for diplomatic action and diplomatic uh, conversations and resolutions, but it's not the only way. You can still go completely out, outside of the UN and individually handle... Um, diplomatic resolutions between countries and we see that all the time and so while the US may not be able to do anything within the UN against Russia what they can do is go outside of the UN and then go support Ukraine go give them weapons go talk to the uh, Baltic nations provide them support and do perform diplomatic actions and you also have NATO which is another body which also has its own range of actions that it can perform. And so while the UN may be essentially powerless on what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, they are not the only solution to diplomatic um, actions yeah. throughout the world. Yeah. So, but my thing is this. I think my question, and I keep having to find ways to re to reestablish my question. And I You're... don't think, I don't think you guys would think it was going to take it to this point, but how do we stop Russia from becoming Nazi Germany? I won't be. That's not happening. So yeah. why? Oh, that's actually very simple. So 
why Putin did this when he did this. We mentioned it beforehand. Oh, yeah. Russia is facing a demographic collapse. So what that means is you do not have enough young people to keep up your demographic structure. So there's an idea of a population pyramid. Germany was facing an economic No, 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 they weren't. Very different situation. Extremely. all get out. No, you're not we're listening poor, to poor. me. No, you're not listening. listening to me at all. What I'm saying is what was going on in Germany is they still had a lot of young people, a lot of people growing up. This is a very different situation. Absolute very different situation. There are no kids in Russia. There are no huh? kids. The Russian people as an ethnicity might not exist in 100 years. Okay, it's a very different situation. Normally, when you are in M- normally when countries radically expand, like a cult, like what happened in World War II or what happened with the British to become an empire or France to become an empire, is you have a lot of young people, especially a lot of young men, just sitting around mm-hmm. doing nothing, and you need some way of getting rid of that extra pressure quote-unquote, because you have too many young men. So they expand outward. And in some ways, wars were a way to alleviate having too many young men because you have too many young men who can't get laid because there's not enough women and who are just sitting around doing nothing. They That's how you overthrow a country. That's how countries get overthrown. You just look at the but Middle East. So with Russia, they have the opposite problem. They have no kids. So when you look at the Russian statistics right now, they magically find kids. They add kids to the sentence 10 years later. Like they say, oh, we just randomly found 8 million kids yeah. that are they all 10 years old or above. They don't put have a bit of, kids. Put a bit of numbers into this. Um, Russia's age expectation is around like, life expectancy is around 65, if I'm not mistaken, for men. And currently the population that, look at an age pyramid the amount of slices that you have for each age for folks that are between like around the fair 40s is around 0.75 million more than you have for people in their 20s so if taking two random age out of that you say you have 22 year olds and then 45 43 year olds you have 750,000 more 43 year olds than 22 year olds and that difference remains true throughout the ranges of like 35 to 40, uh, like 35 to like 45, and like 15 to 25 or so. And so that is a significant issue. Yes. So, because you, for those watching at home, sorry, for those listening, you can go to a site called populationpyramid.net. You can go over to where Russia is. And you can see essentially where they'll show you. So they have two sides. They have in blue is men, and on uh, pink is is fem- is women. And what you'll mm-hmm. see is as you go up, you see the age. And so you see how many people of their of this country's population are of what age group. And so what I'm getting, what we're getting at, RJ, is you see how there's a lot of people over thirty, like a lot, a lot of people over thirty. Your fighting male age is between 15 on the extreme low end and 40 on the extreme high end. That's not many people compared to what they used to have. 
and then you see what's below that. It's even less. And most of this is fake. Most of this is literally Russia making up numbers. They just fake people. Like there was literally between one sentence census and another census. They added like two to it's like 10 million like people just randomly that are like 10 years old. You don't just randomly find 10 year olds, not in that range. And the other thing is most of these people in this age group that are under the age of 25 aren't ethnically Russian. They're ethnically Turkish or they're ethnically Uzbek or they're ethnically this. They are not ethnically Russian. So the vast majority of people in Russia who are of fighting age or like who are of the growing population of Russia aren't ethnically Russian, which is concerning to Putin because he wants to protect the Russian state. And also, if you notice... Population of Russia is going to go down. You can see over here. So they also show, besides the population pyramid, they also show you the trends of a, a population. So basically what the the population going up or down over the course of many years. And as you can see, it goes from right now, the reported number is about 146 million. It's going to go down to 126 million. But the vast majority of those people will not be ethnically Russian because they'll all be dead. So basically, from what I'm looking at, it seems to me as if the big problem that Russia has right now is population. You don't have young people. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's very much accurate. Okay, so if you don't have young people, instead of sending what young people you do have to fight a war, why aren't why aren't why isn't Russia looking into things like immigration, bringing people into the country? The the issue Russia has is that. They're not having, they're not seeing immigration because people are leaving the country and they're seeing a significant brain drain because every Russian youngster that is competent and has actually marketable skills is leaving Russia for other countries with better economic opportunity. And so the issue you have in Russia is you don't have any economic opportunity to not only retain your young people, but even attract other country, uh, folks from other countries and other nations to come immigrate to Russia. And so... so on. Here we go. I was going to say so, and this actually should be an opportunity for Russia to evolve, to change, to grow. You would think that as a political it's, power. Yeah, you would think and that. So that would be the best case for the Russian state. So if we were looking in terms of the lens of what is best for the Russian state, that would be what is best. The issue is Russia is led by a dictator. When the economy is controlled by oligarchs, we are purely focused on their own self-interest, and so you don't have any true interests for the people and anyone actually advocating for the benefit of the people. And as such, your economic activity is very minimal and stagnant and there's not any real opportunity because, well, oligarchs are trying to put as much money as possible into their own pockets, aren't really the drivers of economic um, activity and economic op opportunity outside of their bare minimum. Um, and mm -hmm. so that is like the primary issue. But in order to resolve that, Russia needs to pretty much overwhelm itself as a state and pretty much you, you need to start fresh with the Russian state. You need a complete revolution, a complete redesign of their government structure. Um, taxes in Russia need to be redesigned because like currently a ton of it goes to the federal and the federation. And so 
face of various factors, which Russia will need to completely overwhelm, uh, uh, to completely over uh, redo. And in order to do that, well, you need a new Russian state. So okay. that is not something that is so, feasible in short term. So then, then what needs what? Because we all can agree that there needs to be an overhaul. So then, what needs to happen is we, as the other countries in the world, we need to kind of be facilitating that revolution, not patching up the dam, so to say. So it seems like by letting Russia do what they're doing, we're just letting Russia limp along instead of letting it die like it needs to. Yes, actually, that's exactly what we've been doing for. 30 that's years. actually a really good point. That's actually what we've been doing for thirty years, actually. Right. Um, so essentially, like what happened. Die. Essentially, what happened, um, depending on how you view it, but mm -hmm. George Bush for Senior Senior mm -hmm. lost to Bill Clinton in two, 1992. He actually was had a set plan to help Russia kind of reintegrate into the modern world. Right. I'm not saying a lot of his policies were good. I'm not saying he should have beat Bill Clinton. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying he, he actually had a plan to do that. Right. Bill Clinton didn't really care and kind of just let Russia do whatever they wanted. And then 95 came around and because we didn't like we didn't let Russia take the lead in Serbia and sorry, the Yugoslavian territories, it caused a lot of problems um, right. with the Yeltsin administration. actually. So one of the reasons why we've actually seen a lot of prosperity in the West is because the Russian elite has been selling off all of the resources of Russia. So why do we have all the cheap gas, cheap aluminum, cheap wheat, cheap this, cheap that? Because it's much easier just to make the raw material exported out to other countries than it is to take it and make like steel into a tractor or into X, X thing. And also on that point is that when it's controlled by oligarchs, they're just trying to make as much money as possible. Yep. It is much easier to just set up oil wells, get oil out, and then export it. Your amount of work and overhead is minimal. And then you can even take, if you, even if you're setting it cheap, you're still taking a percentage. And it's still going to be better than if you had to do go through the whole refinement process. And then we're, mm -hmm. just, um, we're actually like, utilize it within an economy. And if you're trying to do what's best for the Russian people, like still, instead of actually exporting it all if you start um doing your industry domestically or you grow your economy you offer jobs and that improves the country but when you're just trying to make a quick buck it's way easier to just export it slap a percentage on it and then put that percentage in their pocket and export it to other countries and at the end of the day they're making a shit ton of money but the country is not seeing any um economic activity from it yeah this okay. is part of the reason inflation has gone up so much since the sanctions because we're no longer getting access to all the cheap resources from the Russian state. Okay. So and that's also threat to some extent for the Russian military is that they are very reliant on imports because their domestic industry is atrocious and because they've never developed it because they fucking export everything they can um, to make a quick buck all the time. So when you have a non-developed domestic economy, you can't support your military because or anything where they need skilled laborers, your traders, or even just uh, factories, they don't. And it takes years to develop skilled employees and skilled workmen and develop factories, get your machinery, etc. Well, now they don't. And so that is also like a significant threat for Russia's on a military aspect is that 
they don't have the means to support and rebuild their military. And if they were to lose everything in Ukraine on a theoretical aspect, they'd have nothing because they're entirely reliant on imports. Exactly. So what I'm so like what we're kind of getting at is um, Russia's military, like their military industrial complex is so bad. They're going to the North Koreans and Iranians for stuff now. It's so bad. Right. Because and and I know. Yeah, the low hanging fruit here is to sit and blame their type of government for the problem. It's not that because the Chinese is not the case. Like China has not done that. A lot. I was going to say a lot of people are probably screaming into their monitors right now or their phones saying it's because they're communist. I'm going to bat that and say no. Look at China. Well, Russia is is not a communist state today. Mm. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not even. It's not even socialist. Um, And same thing for China. China is closest to socialism. China is economically fascist. Yes. But that's that's a whole different thing. They got um, they got McDonald's. <laughs> Russia used to have McDonald's. Yeah, no, that that's what that that's where we win the war. We win this. We win this by bringing Russia into the modern world. So, I want to get back to this point you said. Well, why don't they do it with immigration? Well, they have actually, um, but they well, only want a certain type of immigration. The Russian elite, as I was saying, like they they want the Russian ethnicity to grow and expand. They don't want all of the ethnic minorities to. So essentially, they were bringing in all of the Russian people from the sand countries. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, etc. They were bringing all those people in. And anyone from Armenia, Georgia, or Azerbaijan, etc., etc., who wanted to move back, they were paying people to move back into Russia if you were ethnically Russian. Like they paid so, you to do that. But the problem is that's all those people are that's immigration. they've already got everyone who wants to come back. Correct. That but I say that's not true immigration though. True yeah. immigration, I'm not and I'm, I'm not gonna say that America has it down a hundred percent right. But true immigration is you come and bring you to our country so that our country can be better by having you. That's how I've always looked at immigration. You are bringing, you are positive, you are already positive, and making it more positive. Well, I, I, I would like to hear from the actual immigrant on the call. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's like mercy accurate, but like, yeah, I see immigration as more of, and, and it's, I would still say what Russia is did is still and still someone doing is still immigration. Um, what I think, what I would agree with you on is that what you're saying is more of what is actual beneficial immigration. Because what Russia is doing is not immigration and it's truly beneficial to their country. And it's also a bit of a shocker, but people that are trying to leave the Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and all of the other countries to Russia aren't necessarily the most skilled employees or the biggest drivers of economic activity. They're more people who, well, one, they're getting paid to move, and two, they, like, they're in a pretty bad situation, and now they see a better situation in Russia. And for Russia to be a better situation than what you currently have, you have to be in a pretty shitty situation. Um, but like, um, if you're moving to the US in comparison, well, you are 
going there. It, it, it's it's beneficial to the U.S. to have people coming over because these are especially because the U.S. is not only is picky but very restricting immigration. So you have people with skills, people that actually want to move um, to the U.S. to improve their lives, and U.S. is able to be picky and provide. And but what I like one thing that's more important, if anything, for a country is retaining, right? If yes. even you can have a ton of immigration, but if you have very poor retain, like you, you, you're not retaining many people. It doesn't matter. The U.S. is very similar retaining people. You don't see a lot of emigration out of the U.S. You see a lot of immigration, not a lot of emigration. Uh, with Russia, it's the absolute opposite. You see a lot of emigration, very little immigration. Of the high-skilled um, labor. Particularly of the high-skilled labor. But even in general, um, Russian immigration is pretty limited. Um, so there's so, a big brain drain going out of Russia. Like, yeah. So as right. soon as the invasion was announced, like, I know somebody. Oh, who's oh, over the brain there. drain has been occurring for years. Prior oh, of to course, of course. Prior. I'm, I'm just saying, like recently. Oh, yeah, very much. So. Like, uh, I, I just want to give this anecdotal story. So, I worked with a bunch of Russians, and one of my coworkers was over there for a bit for like visa stamp purposes and this whole stupid BS thing. The U.S. immigration system does need to be overhauled in a lot of ways. It needs to be. Oh yeah. If you're an H-1B visa, it needs to be. Strong. But essentially, she was there the day Putin got on at 5 o'clock in the morning and announced the invasion and all of that. And she left. Like She left within a couple days. As soon as she could get out of the country, she was gone. And a lot of people had that. And now that we hear about the partial mobilization, more people are leaving. Um, but Tayari is absolutely right. Um, they have been losing people. I... I personally work along with people who, as soon as the Iron Curtain came down, they were gone. Well, because here's the deal. Going back to that retention, you're only going to retain people if you've got something to offer to combat what's already being offered elsewhere. Why do, why do more people stay in the U.S. than leave? Well, because for the most part, to go anywhere else in the world is a demotion standard of living and all that so if russia wants to retain people they need to increase quality of life absolutely how do they, how do, they do they that they can't they can't actually they can in their current system they, can, they need a total overhaul to be able to do it yeah. uh, and like one of russia's like particularly struggling factors is that they are surrounded by countries which provide better economic activity to their population. And so if you were to go to taking a pretty like on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, you should go to say central sub-Saharan Africa. Even if you were to move around countries to like um right, like from Mali to Niger or to Burkina Faso, the economic opportunity that you're gaining is relatively minor. Um, so you don't have as much of an incentive to move from your country where you've got your family, your resources, etc., to another country because the gain is quite minor. And once when all your surrounding uh, countries don't have a very differing economic uh, opportunity than yours, then the incentive for folks to move around local, like on a local scale, quote unquote, is quite minimal. And so the true, like, very can be motivated to go to Europe the US and that takes significant effort. So if the amount of drain that you are seeing on a population aspect is minimal because the only people you're truly able to 
emigrate out of that country into better opportunities already need to have sufficient resources to be able to go all the way to Europe, all the way to the US and be accepted and get those visa. With Russia, it's very different. Very, all the countries, with the exception of Belarus, pretty much, and to some extent, uh, Kazakhstan and Mongolia, are pre uh, present better opportunities on every facet and better quality of life for the Russian people. Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, Ukraine, Ukraine, even Poland. Yeah, even Ukraine. Um, Poland, Turkey, too, because you, 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 I mean, like, you do have Kaliningrad, so I'll consider them a neighbor. Um, yeah. So all those countries present better economic activity. So, and even China presents better economic activity oh, than yes. Russia itself, and even just better quality of life. So Russian people, like, every, they, they can just drive to a country we've had significant better opportunity for them. So the, it's also harder for the Russian state to retain people when they can go on a quick drive and be in a country which has significant better opportunity for them. Um, and they don't need a lot of resources. Like the amount of resources you need to go from Mali to Europe is significantly more than you would need to go from Russia to Poland or to the Baltics or Ukraine, which has itself way better opportunity and quality of life um, for the than Russian most people. of Russia. Yeah, I've only got Russia. So, and my question becomes, why the for the for the Russian citizens, why don't they something about this? If their government is essentially not looking out for their best interests, why don't they collectively rise together, and overthrow? So it's not as bad as it was in the worst part of the nineties. First off, like it's not as bad yet. It can mm. get a lot worse. So for the average person, it's okay. Like you, like if you're like the average individual, Joe Schmo, it's really, it's not great, but it's survivable. And that's all you've ever known because that you don't care. If but, you but are someone question. who works, like we're talking about the people who actively work with like Western companies or who could work for a Western company. Those people, okay. the people well, you're talking about, it's, a lot of them are older, so you're not as politically like willing to do that as a younger generation. There's not as many young people who okay. are willing okay. to rise up. And so you have to so, remember, like a lot of these people remember the nineties. Like Remember people, the USSR. Yes. And they remember it fondly, very fondly. Yes. And Putin and one is thing a, like Go ahead. Like what thing on mentioned is like it's not the worst. And like they have faced worse times. So they have faced worse times. So like this is not the worst. It can get worse. So they already, it, with Russia and the Russian people, it's very much been satisfied with what you have and being able to have a satisfactory level of quality of life. And okay. that satisfactory is a very low bar. And so they have faced the current, like the population that wouldn't, but is planning, like that wants to stay and that's not trying to emigrate out of Russia. They all, as Han said, older. Most of them have faced the glory days of the Soviet Union, or at least remember it fondly, because even if they didn't live through it, their parents did, and their parents told them all the stories of the glorious Soviet Union. And Putin is trying to push for that. So, one, they see that Putin, their current leader, is trying to push for those glory days, and then they've also known much worse. So they don't have a like significant incentive of revolting, because right now, it, it, they know it can get worse, 
and they don't want it to get worse because right now it's, as he said, not not great, but survivable and right. satisfactory for most of them. So they don't have a particular incentive. If it was to get much worse and back to as worse as it could have been as in the 90s and everything, then sure, you may start getting a significantly increase in the amount of people wanting to revolt. But when the population, the majority of the population who could revolt and who'd be leading revolt aren't motivated because for them, it's not, it, it can get worse. It's not the worst. And they still think that their leader's direction is positive. They're not going to have an incentive to. Yeah. Okay. The, the and other if all thing... you've ever known is poor quality of life, and then you've also known really shitty quality of life, but you've never known good, decent, or anything above just poor quality of life. They're not, they don't know what that is. They don't, they don't have a reason to strive. Um, they don't have a reason to strive for that because well, they don't know what it is. They've never known. Um, it, it's not something that they, they think about or they can really see because then decent or good quality of life, as you see in Western Europe, that is something that is unimaginable for them and that they would need to fully emigrate out of and that is not feasible. It's a utopia. It's, a ut it's pretty utopic for them. Um, okay. Like, there's people who live in the poor part of Mississippi who could leave. I was about to say. And they don't. They're fine with say, it. It's, They're it's fine. Kind of like the argument here in here in America, where you have someone who grew up in a one one stoplight town their entire life, and then you ask them, "Well, why don't you go to the big city?" Yeah. Well, it's just this is what they've known. They're not going to leave what they've known for the unknown. Yeah. But at the same time. Just like using that same analogy, though, what happens to that one stoplight town? It dies. Eventually, time forgets them. Yeah. It dies. So but the what... reason it dies is because industry and time, mm -hmm. they're out of the loop. It's so like this is what we... we were kind of getting at is the Russians have two options. Really, they have three, but realistically, they had two. One was completely change their system have the west help them out a lot that will not happen without every single one person in the elite falling in a shower slipping on some bullets that requires massive cultural economic political changes it's not happening mm -hmm. so they have two options they had the option to slowly let their system die or uh, to shoot to put themselves in front of a firing squad and to get it over quickly. And that's essentially what they've done. Because so, every single person they lose in Ukraine, like every single Russian who dies in Ukraine, that's one less person who can go into your economy, who can go and have a child. So just, just going to kind of cut through all the tape and say it like this. You, you think that this was, and I'm, and I don't mean this to sound in, insensitive, but you you think this was Russia jumping on the jumping on the knife? No, committing suicide. I don't think so. What I no. think it is is Putin understands his country is going to have a major economic issues, like beyond sanctions, beyond anything. Like his country was going to be in a very difficult position in about 20, 30 years from now. He knows that. He knows they, they do not still. have. He does. He knows. He did, the population of recruitable people who fight in a war is so minimal that he had to act when he did. 
because the borders I... that he would get from taking Ukraine, like let's say Ukraine at the time, he thought Ukraine would fall and he took over all of Ukraine. In a lot of ways, if he had the populace of Ukraine with him, he would have had a much more defensible position. Now, I think, Tara, you disagree mm -hmm. with me on this. I think you're giving Putin way too much credit than he deserves. Like, mm -hmm. way That is too very much possible. Um, he is not, I didn't think that 20, he, while he may agree that with you that 20, 30 years Russia is fucked, and I think like even Russian elites have a general consensus that that is the direction the country is going, that like they don't care because they're not going to be alive. But it's also a major factor of the oligarchs. The oligarchs, yes. how do they gain power? They gain power by buying up state enterprises during the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, people who had money and had resources during the fall of the Soviet Union, they're not the fucking youngest, all right? They're not 20-year-olds. Um, they're in their 60s, 70s. And even their next generation, they're getting in their 40s, in their 50s. And they don't have, like, they, these people are not worried of Russia in 30 years. They're going to be dead. And people right. who bought up state enterprises and stack as much money as, stash as much money in their pockets, they don't care because they have enough money to fuck off to another country anyways when shit yeah. hits the fan. So they're Correct. not even worried about that. And then Putin, I think he's aware that he's not going to be alive in 10, 15 years. I think he's aware yeah. of that. And so... Going he's already back, like, older than earlier. the average Russian, like, more yeah. yeah, he's already so, older than life expectancy for Russia, for, like, for right. a Russian male. So I, it's like going back a bit to what I had mentioned earlier, is that Putin is very fond of the glory days of the Soviet unions. He knows he's limited in terms of how many lives, like, how, how long his life is, and how many years he still has left to actually work with, because, well, he's also not stupid. A war, you don't win it in a day, two days. No. It's, it takes time. And so if he wants to reestablish the former Soviet Union, he can't do it for the year that he's dying because, well, it's not going to be enough time. So he needs sufficient time. And especially with reports that he's getting sicker, he knows his time is getting increasingly limited. So I mm -hmm. think like with all the various factors of his yearn for the former Soviet Union and those glory days, and that being something that he really wants to see again, and then demographics starting to get increasingly worse, and particularly his age, mm -hmm. um, I, I think, and I think, like, I don't even think the demographics were that much of a factor for him. I think it's his personal age and True. the uh, yearn for the former state of the um, Soviet Union. Because, like, especially since we've seen recently, is Putin having an increasingly um, influential role in the actions going on in Ukraine and doing a bit of the mistakes Hitler did of being the one doing um, significant orders on a more micro scale. Um, throughout the conflict, which it, for those who aren't familiar, did not turn out well for Hitler, is well, surprise, the, when you're back home in Berlin, in your bunker looking at the state of the war on a macro scale, you aren't as qualified and have the best insight to perform micro decision, like decisions on a micro scale, than the actual commanders who are on the field and commanding that area. Um, and so we're seeing Putin doing that more and more, which I think emphasizes how self-absorbed he is in terms of this conflict. And so I think like the primary factors were more of his glory days with the former Soviet unions and his age and rate, like time of opportunity starting so, to continuously become. So, so if I'm assessing this correctly, A, this seems like it's more just Russia's last blaze of glory. Yes. You know, their time's up. It's yeah, Putin's. Yeah, it's Putin's idea. Putin. Yeah, it's Putin's last up. blaze of glory we, trying to set up some hurrah. sort of legacy for himself. Exactly. That was what I was saying. And then B, 
this this feels like it's Putin's uh, push to try to ensure that his name gets in the books. He wants to be a Stalin, a at least as remembered. He wants to be Stalin, like Peter the Great, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So here in America, how we have our Mount Rushmore of presidents. He wants to be up there with the with the Lenins, with the Stalins. He wants as people talk about the great Russian yeah, country exactly. that was, he wants to be remembered as one of those great leaders. Yeah, so he, he exactly thinks if he can Ivan, establish if he can establish this Russian Empire country back to somewhat of its former glory, that he has basically sealed his seat at the table. You're exactly on point. He wants to be remembered and has the legacy of being the one that brought the glory of the Soviet Union back together after the West, like going from a Russian angle, Russian point of view, after the West destroyed it and brought it to collapse and gave it to the dark times of Russian history. He, Putin was the one that brought back the glory days of the Soviet Union and the glory of the yeah. Russian state. Um, right. And that is very much yeah. the legacy he's striving for. Yeah. And see, another thing that I think I make a mistake of with history, especially is I'm still one of those people that I love history. I love it to death, but I sometimes forget that as far as countries go, there's not a country today that is been cemented as long as some of these countries in history. You mean the like British the United empire? One, right. The U S we've been around less than 300 years. Yes. Russia, they've been around for less than 500 years. Even then, that's still minuscule when you think of things like the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, some of these empires that went thousands of years. The Greek Empire so, wasn't thousands of years. Not thousands, but like hundreds of years. Like the Greek Empire was barely, well, technically it was barely 40 years. Um, 40 yeah, years. But, but even like the Roman Empire and stuff, like it's still hundreds of years. Yeah, like in the scale of time, our, our, our country's today's modern world are still infants and teenage yep. years compared to some of the countries of history. Well, and you and can so, argue, we won't get into it, but you could argue a lot of the political interesting bits that's going on right now is part of the teenage growth phase of the United States. We won't get into that. Oh, but you no, could argue no that. doubt. No doubt. But it's like, I find it interesting that they, there's an old saying that, that my father used to tell me. And it was, those that don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Yep. So if you study history hard enough and long enough, you will find parallels between a lot of the major players in the world scene today and past nations and past countries that fell for the same reasons that some of these countries today are dealing with. Yeah. Oh. What what I want to like add on to what you said is that a lot of these all the countries we have nowadays are very recent, but some mm. of their on a some of these countries on a cultural aspect and their main population base is, is culturally is very old. Um, you look at especially in Europe, these are while they didn't weren't sovereign countries five hundred one thousand years ago, they still had that cultural identity that has remained for thousands of years with them to the modern day. But throughout the entire world, the in terms of actual the present day sovereign states, they're all very new. Um oh, Russia. Yeah. It Russia as well since the fall of the Soviet Union, even France since the Fifth Republic. Um Germany, very recent. Um 
all of the countries, even the UK, all of the countries that are active in Europe, they all, they're like, the, their current sovereign state and the current definition of borders is very recent. And oh, yes. like as Han alluded to, that is the source it's of John, many struggles. Uh, John? Okay. Yes, so um, they, he, he um, for those you know, I go by a different name online. But um, it, it, it's, it's, it is John. <laughs> all right i'll call you john if you prefer no um, it, you can call me whatever you want i just am giving context for anyone who's listening okay yeah i'm just used to quoting your heart so i know um, uh, that's why i'm getting context <laughs> <laughs> right so, like as you alluded to like a lot of those current uh, a lot of current geopolitical issues that we see are due to those defining of borders um which are very infant and weren't done the best especially if you go looking like colonial times and the border that edge you up uh, they did not necessarily, even if they attempted to follow cultural um, lines, they didn't draw the best of lines. Yep. And so that is, I mean, we're not going to get into it, but like that is also the source of many geopolitical conflicts. I'd say the majority of geopolitical conflicts in the world. What is a right. nation and what is a state? So for those of you who don't know, you think that's the same. Those words are synonyms of each other, and they are not. Oh, not at all. Yeah. Um, but kind of like, like I was saying, I'll use uh, I'll use our country, United States, United States. as an example. Well, I'd, you know, sometimes we have listeners from outside the U.S. We do. We have one from Sweden. See, so for those that don't know, we're based in the U.S. <laughs> one of our greatest strengths, and this kind of goes back to something we were talking about not too not too long not too long ago in this conversation. One of our greatest strengths as a country, in my opinion, is our approach overall our approach on immigration where we, where you come into our country and you bring your culture with you. And I bring that up because I think that was also one of the things that led the most to the longevity of the Roman empire, for example, that you were Roman to able to practice your, your own culture, but you could do it under the Roman banner. And I think that that's, one thing that led to a lot of their success as a country or as a nation was they never really forced and tried to eradicate their nations. They allowed other nations to stay and preserve Within, like, their own state. Like culture. Right. Like, yeah. Whereas whereas a lot of countries in modern world, from what I've gathered, don't do that. If you want to come to X country, you will adopt our custom. You will change yourself to us. So Teari can speak about this a lot better than I can. But Europe, one of the issues they have with immigration is they do not assimilate nearly as well as the United States does. Um, when you have very differing cultures. Like if the culture is like very non-European, let's say. Let, let's put in that context. That and I think it is an issue. I think one of the why it's such an issue in Europe is that the current cultures have been very long lasting, and they've been the the current nations in Europe have been incredibly long lasting, and so you have this culturally um, not diverse, but like um, like they they've been established for so yeah, long. It's been, old man diverse. syndrome. Exactly. Well, if you compare it to the United States, um, and again, that classic 
uh, melting pot analogy, well, you have had tons of various cultures from the very beginning uh, that came in. And so um, you have in Europe a very uniform, each state generally has a uniform, it, each state is pretty much a uniform nation, which has existed for a long time. Yeah. And so you have a uniform culture. And when they're, they're not, you see much more xenophobia because when you have other cultures come in, well, they're coming in with a very dissimilar culture and something that clashes sometimes with the existing culture and existing um, principles. But what if you go to the US in, in stark comparison, you have such a melting pot of cultures mm -hmm. and different people that not only is it easy for you to find a community that has your culture and that right. has similar values as you, but also that people are so exposed to such a wide range of cultures and values that they don't, it's not a significant issue because I'd argue you don't have an American identity. Um, as well, in, we like, don't. You don't like, have you an American agree. people. You, you can you, just look people... at how many people like say, I'm, su I'm such percentage German or such percentage English, yeah. Irish. Also, like, I'm Midwestern, I'm Southern, yes. um, I'm Texan. Because uh, that's uh, because you Texans have like different thing. Like yeah, they're hard. Like I'm Damn, not me. I am um, no Texan. I oh I I'm I, I bleed. I bleed the old red, white, and blue Lone Star. <laughs> um, and like that is something like. And also, if you look at like the military, if you take in any any division, and you look at the folks consisting it, you'll see a wide range of cultures. You'll see everyone from mm -hmm. white America, oh, oh, uh, like from everything from whites. The blacks, the Hispanics, the people from all ranges of the world and all ranges of cultures, um, Asians, um, everyone. You'll see a whole range of cultures. And that is not something if you go and look in Europe. You take in any demographics of any brigade in a European military and you look at it, it's going to be overwhelmingly white. And then a bit of other cultures, uh, like other races and other cultures based on like the demographic breakdown of that country but still it's going to be overwhelmingly um like in france mm -hmm. french whites in germany german whites and that is like something that really differs from the u.s no, which absolutely. is why it's yeah, the only exception so is harder. if you're a if you're a former colonial power so french will have a lot of algerians yeah um yeah but still it's it, it's not as significant um, not even close it, it's not even close to significant so we'll, say... we'll have a greater percentage than other minorities so like they're former colonial countries they can appear in a greater percentage compared to just other general minorities but they're not going to be even close to significant in the white in the greater range of things and i would even argue from an american perspective a lot of times they're not even as assimilated they're not even as what they're not as assimilated oh definitely yeah like definitely i know people right. i i live in an area that is very much a it's plurality white, but it's not majority. A lot of different people. A lot of different people. And Absolutely. I can tell you for a fact, they are American. You want to know how I know they're American? They're in more fantasy football leagues than I am. <laughs> like, you, you have to... Under, the, people like to say all this stuff about the U.S. And a lot of it's true. A lot of it is true. Right. But if you're coming from X country, like random country, you still have a better opportunity here in most of America. Right. Yeah, no, uh, 
I've, I've always I've always been a stickler of the difference between patriotism and patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism, in yep. my opinion, is you accept America for what it is. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing country. But we got our problems. Nationalism is where you accept your country, but you refuse to acknowledge the shortcomings. That's a very American way of looking at nationalism. That's what I am. Very fair. Because Europeans would, uh, would commenting in the chat and be like, that is not. But they can. They can. They can at me. But then I feel this is a whole other discussion with a lot of various caveats and uh, Yeah, which we're not getting into. Yeah. That, 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 no, 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 no. We, we prefer to be an apolitical uh, podcast. Because yeah, no. as John and I said when we first started this channel, my, in our personal opinion, there, there's what, what I would consider to be the low-hanging fruit conversation. Low-hanging fruit conversation is the conversations that are just too easy to fall apart on. For example... We don't we don't discuss religion. We don't discuss politics. Him and I each have our own personal beliefs, as, as I believe everyone should. But what, instead, what we choose to focus on is the things that we can come together at a table and have a conversation about, where we can still walk away at the end and have a respect for one another. Because there's because plenty. A lot, there's plenty. Oh, there's plenty. There's plenty of stuff that we disagree on. Oh yeah, and like politically, we're like. Most people would look at this and say we have the same politics, like relatively yeah. speaking, which we don't. We don't at all. Not at all. And on religion, we definitely Not disagree on a lot. Correct. Correct. I always say, John, of the two of us, I am a lot more the black and white kind of yeah. person. Everything is black and everything is white. It's right or it's wrong. John has a lot more of gray in his in his experiences and in his beliefs my He's way of thinking to... I, I like to i like to try to take and pick it apart whereas you just like so that's the thing where you came out with your idea of russia and this whole thing is like oh russia isn't collapsed therefore we're not doing enough like that's what it right. felt like and it's kind of yeah. seemed like it's the analytical versus the what's the opposite of analytical uh, no so you're looking at it from i don't know anything all i know is we're doing all this, and it doesn't look like to me, without looking into it, anything Working. happened. Yeah. When in reality, if you you know you spend real time looking at the issue, you go, okay, there's actually a lot going on, and this is almost any issue. It's not as simple as the surface level Wikipedia article, like level of stuff. So, the whole reason the show is called Unapologetic Media is we don't talk about red versus blue politics we don't talk about religion in a lot of ways we will have someone on soon who you will love but i'll talk to you guys offline about that okay Um, but yeah no instead what we chose is we chose to talk about stuff that you can quite literally unapologetically disagree on yes where the moment we hang up and this goes live i don't have to worry about my job calling me and saying hey you're, you're being terminated for what you said So, I think this was a good discussion, guys. Um, Absolutely. We are already I, at, I think, course. an hour and a half. And so, we're going to stop here for today. We didn't even get into the real meat of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine.
Thanks. We will have to have you back on soon. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's going to be a multi-hour uh, total series if I want to try and get into the oh. nitty-gritty and uh, meat of what's going on in Ukraine. I still want to uh, pull on into it. I'm just dreading actually putting in the work to actually make a proper thing about it. Oh, yeah, because if you, if we want, to, want a nitty-gritty uh, view of what's going on in Russia, it is, it is going to be a multi-hour. Because there's so many different facets, so many different angles, and yeah. so many different components. That are playing a part, and each one of those are each playing a significant part. And you can all do ten. You could do a whole. You could do a whole episode on just Germany and their stance <laughs> and their motivations <laughs> and reasoning, like towards what's going on in Ukraine. That's gonna be. That could even be two full episodes. That that's at uh, least two hours worth of of material. Yeah. At least so much. And then then, I um, think we need to book something. I think we need to get you on the book. Let, listen, let me. Let, okay, okay. Let's end the podcast here. We'll talk more off air. This has been the Unapologetic Media Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, etc. Thank you all for watching and have a good day.